0: My name is Dr. Suzanne Boyle. I'm a nephrologist at the Lewis-Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today we're going to be going over the case of a 20-year-old female with polyuria and polydipsia. If you were following along in the Beyond the Pearls book, this is case number 30, and it was authored by Dr. Mark Riley's, Patricia Lorenzo, and John Carmichael. So let's meet our patient. This patient is 20 years old, and she presents to your clinic with polyuria and nocturia for the past four days. She states that she's been urinating every hour and wakes up several times throughout the night to urinate. The urine is voluminous and clear in color. Additionally, she complains of constant thirst and has been drinking large amounts of water and an electrolyte sports drink. She has tried not to drink any fluids or caffeine products within one hour of bedtime, but this has not helped. During the evaluation, the patient excuses herself to urinate and get a drink of water. Okay, so we have a patient who is presenting to us with polyuria, nocturia, as well as polydipsia. What should we ask her? Specifically, what should we ask her about the nocturia? Well, it's important to ask about the nature of the nocturia when evaluating a patient with urinary complaint. Under normal circumstances, the kidneys produce less urine during the night, allowing people to sleep through the night without having to urinate. Waking multiple times with the urge to urinate can be pathologic. When a patient presents with polyuria, nocturia, and polydipsia, which is excessive thirst, you should think about the possibility of a hormonal etiology. It is also important to elucidate from the patient what and how much he or she drinks before bed. Because this patient wakes several times during the night to urinate without drinking excess fluids before bed, an endocrine disorder is likely. All right, so let's get a little bit more information from our patient. Well, she tells us that she does not have any past medical history that she is aware of. She has never had surgery or been hospitalized for any reason. She does not take any medications and she has no known allergies. Her parents are in good health and also have no significant past medical history. She eats a balanced diet, drinks one cup of coffee per day in the morning, and does not smoke, drink alcohol, or use illicit substances. Upon review of systems, the patient admits to dry mouth and dry skin. She admits to constipation for the past several days but denies abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. She denies dysuria, urgency, and gross hematuria. The patient denies polyphagia, temperature intolerance, and recent weight loss. The remaining review of systems is negative. Here's a clinical pearl. A good endocrine review of systems requires asking the patient questions that may seem unrelated to one another, but are important in reaching a diagnosis. Questions to ask include changes in weight, changes in eating and drinking habits, temperature intolerance, changes in skin and hair, and changes in sweating. So now that we've talked to our patient, let's do a physical exam. Our exam shows that the patient's blood pressure is 126 over 85 millimeters of mercury. She has a pulse of 103 beats per minute. Her respiratory rate is 14 per minute. And her temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. She is in no acute distress. Her cardiac exam reveals mild tachycardia, regular rhythm, with clear lung sounds. Her skin is very dry and has decreased turgor. Her mucous membranes and lips are dry, and her abdomen is soft and non-tender. Her lower extremities show no edema, and they have intact pulses. Now we have a physical exam and a history what should we do next? What test should we order initially? Well, in this patient with polyuria, a urinalysis can be done to assess urine concentration and to check for the presence of abnormal substances or microbes. Because the other chief complaint is polydipsia, electrolyte and serum solute status are important to know as well. These can be obtained with a basic metabolic panel. A glucose and hemoglobin A1c should also be ordered to evaluate for diabetes mellitus. So we go to the urine. We obtain a urinalysis, and this reveals a urine osmolality of 180 milliosms per liter with no other abnormal findings. A basic metabolic panel shows a serum osmolality of 295 milliosms per liter, a serum sodium of 142 milliequivalents per liter, glucose of 96 milligrams per deciliter, and calcium of 9.7 milligrams per deciliter with all other values normal, including an absence of protein or glucose in the urine, a complete blood count is normal, and the A1c is 5.4%, which does not suggest a diagnosis of diabetes. So, While the serum sodium in this patient is within the normal range, a value in the upper range of normal can still indicate existing pathology. However, sodium near the upper limit of normal usually does indicate a relative water deficit. Increased serum sodium concentration provides a stimulus for fluid intake to replenish urinary and other losses. Patients who have access to water are usually able to prevent hypernatremia. Remember, hypernatremia means that there is a relative deficit of water to serum sodium. All right, so what is our differential diagnosis at this point? We know that a urine osmolality less than 200 milliosms per liter in conjunction with polyuria often indicates the presence of diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is a condition in which the kidneys excrete large volumes of dilute urine. Patients with untreated diabetes insipidus produce greater than 3 liters per day, but can exceed 18 liters per day. This excess water loss is attributed to a problem with the normal functioning of vasopressin, a hormone secreted from the posterior pituitary that facilitates the reabsorption of water in the collecting duct of the kidney. There are several forms of diabetes insipidus, or DI. These include central DI, nephrogenic DI, And primary polydipsia, which is also sometimes called psychogenic DI. Central DI is caused by dysfunction in the synthesis, transport, or release of vasopressin from the hypothalamus or posterior pituitary. Nephrogenic DI is the result of resistance to the action of vasopressin by the kidneys. Primary polydipsia is the result of chronic excess fluid intake that impairs the release of vasopressin. The normal actions of vasopressin on the nephron act to conserve free water in the urine. The treatment for each form of DI is different, so it's important to differentiate which form is present in this patient with further testing before proceeding with treatment. Because the patient shows no signs or symptoms of infection, a urinary tract infection will be low in the differential diagnosis despite the presence of polyuria. Other conditions that cause polyuria and polydipsia are diabetes mellitus. Elevated calcium in the serum, otherwise known as hypercalcemia, and medications such as diuretics. It is important that several diagnoses have already been ruled out through the initial laboratory testing that we have done. Uncontrolled diabetes mellitus is a common cause of polyuria. The kidneys are only able to reabsorb a certain amount of glucose and the rest is excreted in the urine. Glucose in the urine creates an osmotic gradient, thereby increasing water excretion. The normal glucose on this patient's basic metabolic panel and her normal hemoglobin A1c rule out diabetes mellitus. Now that we have ruled out polyuria secondary to glucose urea caused by diabetes mellitus, and we have ruled out urinary tract infection, which can cause the sensation of polyuria, we can start to think about the possibility. Of diabetes insipidus and further what type of diabetes insipidus this patient might have and ways to differentiate in central versus a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So what tests can we order to do that? One test is called a water deprivation test. This test involves depriving the patient of all fluids to stimulate vasopressin secretion. The patient's body weight, blood pressure, urine volume, urine osmolality, serum sodium, and serum osmolality are measured hourly during this test. The initial phase of the test ends when indices of urine concentration plateau. Once this is achieved, desmopressin or DDAVP, a synthetic vasopressin or ADH analog, is given to the patient, usually as a subcutaneous injection. Urine osmolality is measured one and two hours post injection. In patients without diabetes insipidus or those with primary polydipsia, the urine osmolality will be greater than the plasma osmolality in response to fluid restriction, meaning that the patient will be able to concentrate their urine. Patients without diabetes insipidus usually concentrate their urine to above 500 millimoles without administration of DDAVP. Furthermore, urine osmolality will show a minimal increase following DDAVP injection. With diabetes insipidus, urine osmolality remains less than or only mildly above plasma osmolality following fluid restriction. A rise of greater than 50% in urine osmolality after DDAVP administration is consistent with central diabetes insipidus, meaning that the posterior pituitary on its own Is unable to secrete ADH. And by replacing it with DDAVP, we see that the urine can now become concentrated under its action. A rise of less than 50% in urine osmolality after DDAVP is consistent with nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, meaning that even though we've given the patient exogenous ADH or vasopressin, it's not. Working because the kidney is not responding. The problem lies in the collecting duct of the kidney with resistance to the DDAVP or the ADH. In our patient, there is a 70% increase in urine osmolality after administration of DDAVP. This is consistent with a diagnosis of central diabetes insipidus. Now that we have a diagnosis, how will we treat this patient? Well, the primary goal of managing central diabetes insipidus is the maintenance of hydration status. Patients with central diabetes insipidus are encouraged to drink water throughout the day. The next step is to control nocturia and polyuria during the day. First-line treatment with DDAVP at a starting dose of 10 micrograms at bedtime is recommended. DDAVP can be administered orally, parenterally, or as an intranasal spray. It is important to note that oral DDAVP is less bioavailable than intranasal delivery due to decreased absorption in the gut. DDAVP is generally well-tolerated with few side effects. Doses and timings should be tailored to fit each patient based on severity of symptoms and life demands. Here's a clinical pearl. In patients, With treated, symptomatic, diabetes insipidus, severe increased thirst will return prior to the return of polyuria. When giving instructions to patients regarding dosing of DDAVP, it is helpful to guide the patient to administering the DDAVP once these symptoms recur, and this will avoid progressive fluid retention and possibly the opposite of their original problem, which is hyponatremia due again to fluid retention. Under the influence of DDAVP. So, what is the long term management of central diabetes insipidus? So, determining the exact cause of central diabetes insipidus further aids in management of the condition. There are three major causes of central diabetes insipidus one, physical damage from tumor, trauma, or surgery to the posterior pituitary, two, genetic causes and three idiopathic causes. Physical damage is by far the most common cause of central diabetes insipidus. Obtaining an MRI of the hypothalamus and pituitary region is frequently needed to determine the location and extent of damage. If a tumor is present, transphenoidal surgery may be indicated for resection. Patients with physical damage, whether due to trauma or neurosurgical intervention may also present the symptoms of other endocrine disorders and visual field defects. Familial central diabetes insipidus is exceedingly rare, and genetic mutations have only recently been discovered. Idiopathic central diabetes insipidus may have an autoimmune origin, but more research is needed to determine this. So in our patient, the treatment course included starting 10 micrograms of intranasal DDAVP at night. She responded well to this and she ceased having nocturia almost entirely and her daytime symptoms are being controlled very well on this dose. So there you have it. We diagnosed a 20-year-old woman who presented in our office with polyuria and polydipsia with central diabetes insipidus and now we are successfully treating her symptoms. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Pearls podcast. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.